In the following sermon, which was recorded on Christmas Day 1961 in the Westminster Chapel, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is preaching from the first book of Kings, chapter 8, verse 27, and from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. Now, there I'm reading out of the account which he has given of uh, the real opening of the temple that was built by King Solomon. You remember how the children of Israel had uh, worshipped God in that uh, tabernacle, that tent which they had made and uh, according to God's instructions and which they took with them wherever they went. Whenever they wanted to worship God or to seek his guidance, they would go to this tabernacle. But now David at the end of his life had conceived the idea of building a permanent house, no longer a movable tent but a permanent house, the house of God, a place in which he and his people could meet together with God. But you remember that he was not allowed to do so, but God indicated that this should be done by his son. And so when Solomon came to the throne, he proceeded to build this great temple, the temple of God, where he and the people might worship. And here in this chapter, this 8th chapter of the first book of Kings, uh, we are given an account of how everything having been finished, the great day came when the temple should be dedicated. And uh, what we find is this. It came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. This temple, you remember, was divided into various sections. There was a kind of outer court, and then there was a place called the holy place. And then beyond that, beyond the partition, was a place called the holiest of all. And it was there that uh, there was a representation of the visible presence of God. God's Shekinah glory was to be found there in the holiest of all. There was an ark there, and the cherubim over the ark, and this glory overshadowing everything. And it into that place, that holiest of all, only one person was allowed to enter, and that was the great high priest. And this high priest even was only allowed to go in once a year. He went in with the blood offering of the people to make atonement for sins. And there he sprinkled it in the presence of God's glory as represented by the Shekinah. Well, now, that's the background to this uh, statement that we're looking at together. God, as it were, had promised that he would meet with his people there, that he would, as it were, come down and meet them when they went there to worship him. And what we've got in this verse is the expression of astonishment on the part of King Solomon. The great thing at last has come to pass. But he, in a sense, he can't believe it. He can't accept it. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain it. How much less this house that I have built it? Is it possible, he says, that God really is going to come down and to meet with us there in the holiest of all, in this temple that we have erected to him, 
into his glory. Well now I want to make use of this in order that we may consider together what is after all the great and the central message of Christmas. This which we have met together to celebrate today. It's often a very good thing to approach New Testament truth through one of these Old Testament adumbrations, through one of these old prophecies, one of these foreshadowings. Every part of truth is presented in the Old Testament in a more or less material manner. It's an accommodation to the state of the people at the time. There is an element of progression in God's revelation. And thus it often happens that we are given great light upon this wonderful thing that is recorded in the New Testament by the imagery which we find recorded in the Old Testament scriptures. And it is in that way that I want to use this this morning. So let me put it to you in the form of the following thoughts. The first thing then by which we are confronted is this fact, this astounding fact. What happened at Christmas? Well, what happened at Christmas was that God came down to dwell on earth. I remember hearing of an old preacher, an old Welsh preacher, preaching on this very text that I'm trying to preach on this morning. And he handled it like this. He, first of all, gave out his text. And the Welsh translation would go something like this. Is it true, indeed, that God will dwell on the earth? And he read his text several times. Is it true, indeed, that God will dwell on the earth? And then he paused and looked at the people and said, Yes, perfectly true. Perfectly true. And that's really all we can say this morning. That is exactly and precisely what has happened. God has come down to dwell on earth. The little children's hymn puts it, I love to hear the story which angel voices tell, how once the king of glory came down on earth to dwell. That's it. Now here I say we are confronted with a fact, and you've noticed the hymns we've been singing have already brought it out. Pleased as men with men to dwell. Jesus. Well, what? who is Jesus? He's our Emmanuel, which means God with us. And another of our hymns has put exactly the same thing to us. God, shepherds in the field abiding, watching o'er your flocks by night. Listen, says, said this heavenly choir. God with men is now residing. That's the thing. God has come down to dwell on earth. And that is why we can think of it in terms of that statement in John 1.14 also. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now the meaning of that word is tented, lived in a tent, tabernacled amongst us. In other words, he has literally and actually come down from the realms of glory and has come to dwell on earth. Now I am concerned that we should hold firmly in our minds that this is a literal fact. This is not a mere story. 
This isn't a fairy tale. There have been brilliant men, geniuses, who've got vivid imaginations, and they've drawn on their imagination and have pictured wonderful things. You can read it in their mythologies and in their various stories. And the great danger is, of course, that we tend to assume and to think of this mighty event in that kind of term and put it into that kind of category. But that's not the thing. This is the truth, that God the Son, the second person in the blessed Holy Trinity, has literally and actually come down to dwell amongst men. It's not a story, not fancy. It's not a figment of the imagination. We are dealing here with sheer history, solid fact. The same sort of thing as we record when we say that Julius Caesar conquered this country in 55 B.C. Now that's an actual concrete event. So is this, still more so. That's why you call that 55 B.C., before Christ. We are living in 1961 A.D., Anno Domini, all because this literal event took place. It's not a fancy, it's a fact. In the same way, uh, we must point out, and particularly as we are looking at the Old Testament, that this is not what is called a theophany. Those of you who are familiar still with your Old Testaments, we'll know that uh, repeatedly in the Old Testament we are told about the angel of the covenant who suddenly appeared. You remember he appeared to Abraham on certain occasions. Some strange being, the angel of the covenant. And it's been generally agreed by expositors throughout the centuries that the angel of the covenant is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But he appeared only in the form of a man. That wasn't his incarnation. He was able to appear in human form for a while and then disappear again and go back to his glory. Now, that's what's called a theophany, a kind of appearance. But what we are dealing with as we think of what happened on that first Christmas morning is not a theophany. It isn't a mere temporary appearance of the Son of God. Oh, no, this is something which belongs, I say, solidly and literally to history, and it's factual. He literally came to dwell amongst men. He was truly born as a babe. He took on human nature. He was a real child, as every other child is a real child. That's the thing, I say, which we must hold on. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? And the answer is, that's exactly what happened. That is precisely what took place. The second person in the blessed Holy Trinity left the courts of heaven and came down on earth to dwell. God living on earth amongst men. Now this, of course, is the fact of all facts, which brings me to my second thought, which is this, the marvel of the fact. That was the thing, of course, that was in the mind of Solomon. That's the thing he couldn't get over. Is this possible? Why? Well, he gives the reason. He says, Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have builded. He said to himself and says to God and to the people at the same time, is it possible that God can come and dwell in this temple? 
It's a very big building. It's a magnificent building. The instructions were, you remember, that it should be exceeding magnificent. But yet, says Solomon, though this is a very great building, it's not great enough to contain God. Why, the heaven and the very heaven of heavens can't contain thee, for God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. God is, well, there's no limit to God. God is. Is it possible that God can, as it were, come down and localize himself in this way? That God is there in the holy of, holiest of all? And that we can meet with God there? Is this thing possible? The thing is so stupendous. He marvels at it. And here again, of course, we are led immediately to the thing that should be uppermost in our minds as we meet together on this Christmas morning and think of what happened there in Bethlehem. It's the same thing. But in a sense, it's much more glorious and wonderful. There was a representation of the glory of God. God actually was not there. He gave a representation of himself in the Shekinah glory. But we've got something truly astounding and amazing to consider. What is it? Well, here it is, isn't it? Solomon was amazed that the glory of God could be confined, as it were, to this temple, this great building. And he's surprised because God is the creator, after all, and how can the creator be confined to a building? Perfectly right. You remember how Stephen, the martyr Stephen, in preaching to those Jews, he makes the same point. He says, God dwelleth not in temples made with hands. The Jews had materialized all this, and God was only in the temple, and if you didn't worship in the temple, you couldn't worship God. You couldn't worship anyone else. They were wrong in all that, and so the argument was a perfectly fair one. The God who's made everything can't be confined to temples made with hands, because he is God. He's the creator, the sustainer of everything, the omnipresent God. And yet, the thing that brings us together this morning is just this. That something infinitely more wonderful has happened. God, whom we can't conceive of as being confined to even to a great temple, a mighty building, has literally and actually been confined to something very much smaller than that. The heaven, the heavens of heavens can contain thee. But the virgin's womb did contain him. The virgin's womb. The everlasting son, the word, the one through whom, as we've been reminded, all things were made and without whom was nothing made that is made. The sustainer of everything has been confined to the virgin's womb. That's what we are celebrating, my friends. This is the astounding and stupendous thing. Solomon was amazed. What about us? The Lord of glory in the virgin's womb. God confined to a womb. And then, of course, being born, there he is, a little helpless infant. The one, I say, who made everything. The one who sustains everything can be held in the hands of people 
helpless. They put him there. There he is born in a stable. God confined to a stable, indeed even to a manger. Now, this is the thing you see that we are reminded of. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Is it possible that God's going to be there? The heaven of, and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have builded. But here I say, you have the very Son of God in all his infin infinity of glory. Confined to a womb, to a stable, to a manger. Rarely dwelling amongst men. Well, let Charles Wesley say it again for us. We've just been singing that magnificent hymn of his, possibly the greatest hymn in the whole of the hymn book. Veiled in flesh. What? The Godhead. See. There it, the Godhead. That babe, that infant, that helpless child. The Godhead. Veiled in flesh. Confined, as it were, to flesh. Hail, he says, incarnate deity. Now, that's what the authorities like to call the paradox, and it is a paradox. This is God, and this is God's way of salvation. This is God coming down. The Word was made flesh, tabernacled amongst us, and the tabernacle was his flesh, his body, this thing in which he was veiled, and all his glory was concealed. It's all there. But it's veiled in the flesh. It's confined, as it were, by these earthly conditions. He had become man. This is the whole essence and meaning and glory of the incarnation. Well, now, let us try to ponder and to work out at leisure for ourselves something of all, of what all that involved and meant for him. You've got a perfect commentary upon it all. In the Apostle Paul's statement in the second chapter of his epistle to the Philippians. Though he was equal with God. He counted it not robbery to be equal with God. But made himself of no reputation. There it is. He was equal with God. He was in the form of God. He'd been that from eternity. In the beginning was the word. He always was. Co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. Sharing the same substance, part of the same triune Godhead. But he didn't hold on to that. He didn't count this as something to be held on to, at all costs to be clutched at. Instead of that, he humbled himself. And he made himself of no reputation. No, that doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his Godhead. That's inconceivable. God can't empty himself of Godhead. That's something that God cannot do. God is God. There's no such thing as being em as emptying of Godhead. No, no. What it means is this. That he took on another form. He's still the same. But he appears in a different form. Had always been in the form of God. In the glory everlasting from eternity. But now he enters into time. And he comes in another form. Takes on just another form. Same person. Same God the Son. But in the form of a man. In the likeness. In the form of a man. In the likeness of a servant. And you see what it meant was this. 
that he had to lay aside the signs and the manifestations, the insignia, if you like, of his everlasting and eternal glory. If he had come as he really is in all the glory of the Godhead, no eye could have seen him. No man hath seen God at any time, and no man could stand the sight. To see God would shrivel sinners to nothing. So he came in this form in which we could look at him and see him. And enable him to say later on to a, a man like Philip, He who hath seen me hath seen the Father. Because he is the Son of the Father and the express image of his person. The brightness of his glory. But it's veiled in flesh. It's veiled in flesh while he was here on earth. And it has to be. Otherwise the sight, I say, would be too much for all mortal men. And especially men in sin. So this is what happens. This is what is involved. For God to be able to come down on earth to dwell amongst men. He has to come in this other form. But not only that. He had to make himself of no reputation, which means that he didn't come announcing who he was. But he came to share life with men as men. And so we read of him as being helpless, as I say, of growing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. We read of him as a little boy. We read of him working as a carpenter. Unknown, unrecognized. Not worshipped, not adored being buffeted by people, sharing all the vicissitudes of life. That's a part of it all. In order to come down to dwell amongst men, God to come down to dwell amongst it, in, it involved all that. He had to humble himself and make himself of no reputation in this way and share the lot of ordinary men and women. And that is exactly what he has done. So we are not only confronted by the fact itself, we are confronted by what it involves. This self-abnegation, this self-humbling, bringing himself down, as it were, to our level. Asking John the Baptist to baptize him, identifying himself with us and with our sin. Now, there is this glorious mystery. This is what happens all along. He is still God, but he's dwelling on earth as man with man, sharing temptations, tempted in all points, like as we are yet without sin, and all that is involved in the story that we can read for ourselves in the pages of the four Gospels. Well, there it is. I leave it at that. I'm just giving you some thoughts to work out for yourselves and to meditate upon at leisure. The fact and the marvel and the wonder of the fact that God indeed has come down to dwell and not in a great temple, but in the virgin's womb, in the stable, in the manger, in the carpenter's shop, sharing ordinary life with ordinary men and women. But come, let me make another point, the purpose of the fact. What's the object? What's the purpose? Well, that's where this Old Testament illustration is so helpful to us. Why did they build their temple? What was the object and the purpose of the Shekinah glory? Well, I've already answered the question by saying this. The whole object and purpose of the temple was that it should be a place of worship. It should be a place where the people could meet, not only together, but to meet with God. They went there to meet with God. That's the object. That is the ultimate purpose. 
that they might have communion with him and that they might pray to him, that they might confess their sins to him and above all that they might receive blessings from him. Now that's the object. Listen to it. That's put in verses 29 and 30 of this 8th chapter of the first book of Kings. That thine eyes may be open toward this house night and day, even toward the place of which thou hast said, My name shall be there, that thou mayest hearken unto the prayer which thy servant shall make toward this place. And hearken thou to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel, when they shall pray toward this place. And hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and when thou hearest, forgive. Now then, that is the ultimate object and purpose of it all. They made the temple for that reason. God came to meet them there. They went in knowing that they would meet him there at the mercy seat. Over this ark and the cherubim and the glory of God, a meeting place with God. What's the object of the incarnation? Why did the Son of God ever come down on earth to dwell? Why was Jesus ever born at Bethlehem? What's the object of this? What's the purpose? Why did God send his only Son here into this world? And the answer, you see, is still the same. This is the object. That we might meet with God. This is stated abundantly in the New Testament. Our Lord himself said it. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. It is only in him and through him that you can meet the Father. The Apostle Peter, in writing his first epistle in chapter 3, verse 18, says exactly the same thing. He says that he died in order to Bring us to God. The Apostle Paul is full of the same teaching. Listen to him in Ephesians 2.18. By him, he says, by the Lord Jesus Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, by him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, here is the essential message of Christmas. Our Lord didn't come into this world merely to give us a teaching. He didn't merely come to give us an example. There are so many people today who seem to think that the sole message of Christmas is the message of pacifism. And I've no doubt many will be preaching about bombs and war and things like that this morning, as if the sole message of Christmas is pacifism. My dear friends, if you stop at that, you haven't begun to see the glory. No, no, he didn't come on earth merely to talk politics or to give us general teaching, philosophic or social, or anything else. He came, and this was the one grand object and intention, to bring us to God. Man is estranged from God. Man, by nature, is under the wrath of God. That's why our world is as it is this morning. The wrath of God is upon it. Has a world like this any right to ask God's blessing? It's sinned against him. It's spurned his commandments. It's broken them deliberately. It's God-hating. And yet it expects God to look down, smiling upon it, and to bless it. It's impossible. The holy nature of God cannot do that, I say. God is holy and of such a pure countenance that he cannot even look upon sin. Oh, no, the great need of the world 
The great need of every individual is to know God, is to be brought to God, is some, to find some place where he can meet with God and speak to him and pray to him and be blessed of him. And there's only one place in which it can be done. As God appointed that they should go and meet with him there in that old temple that was built by Solomon, and especially in the holiest of all, so he has done this. That was but a shadow. That was but an indication. That was but a type. Just pointing forward to the coming of the Son of God himself. It is in him alone that we can meet with God. Because something must be done about our sin. And he alone can do it. And he alone has done it. He was born to die. He was born to sacrifice himself for us and our sins. He was born for the suffering of death, that he might taste death for every man. He was born that he might be made the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And that's the only way whereby we can meet God. Oh, says Job, that I knew of some daysmen who could come between God and myself. Oh, that there were some daysmen. And here is the daysman. It is in Christ that man alone is able to meet with God and have communion with God and bring his prayers and his supplications and his petitions to God. Now, if you read the remainder of this eighth chapter of the first book of Kings, you will find that Solomon dealt with the whole thing in detail. He says, now we thy people are going to find ourselves in trouble. So he says, if any man trespass against his neighbor and an oath be laid upon him to cause him to swear and the oath come before thine altar in this house, then hear thou in heaven and do and judge thy servants condemning the wicked to bring his way upon his head and justifying the righteous to give him according to his righteousness. He lists the possible needs of men. Here they are. Man needs protection. Man needs help in defeat. Man needs help when there is drought and when there's no rain and when there's no food. He needs help in famine. He needs help in pestilence. He needs help when the mildew comes. And then he's got a wonderful statement here in verse 38. What prayer and supplication soever be made by any man or by all thy people Israel, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart and spread forth his hands toward this house, the plague of his own heart. That's what a man needs, not only when circumstances go against him, not only when there's war or pestilence or famine or disease or defeat by enemies, oh, but when a man knows the plague of his own heart, when he realizes he's a sinner, when he knows he's vile, when he realizes that his nature is twisted and perverted and hopeless, where can he go? What can he do? Men can't help him because they're the same. Knowledge is inadequate because he can't put it into practice. He needs more. He needs God. How can he find him? Here's the only place. It is in Christ. That's why he came, my friends, in order that we might be able to approach God when we see the need of forgiveness. When we fall into sin and we can't forgive ourselves and we don't know what to do, there's only one thing to do. It is to go to meet with God through this Christ. Yes, 
He's dealt with the sin. He's borne its punishment. He's died for us. God has punished us in him. We can meet with God and we can be given absolution. We are assured of forgiveness. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. We fly to Christ and there we know we meet with God and we have forgiveness and pardon, new life, new nature, sustenance, blessing, everything we need. And it's all in this blessed person. That's why God came down on earth to dwell with men. That's the answer to the problem and to the enigma. Heaven, the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. Yes, but he's been contained in the womb. He's been contained in a body of flesh. Why? The answer is that you and I might meet with God and receive those blessings that can come alone from him. Very well, that leads me to my last word, which is this. What is our response to this? What should be our response to this? Well, surely it's prefigured in this Old Testament. It should be amazement. Will God indeed dwell on the earth in order that I may meet with him? Is it possible? Can it happen? Amazement. Solomon was amazed that God should meet in the Shekinah glory with his people in the temple. My dear friends, let's test ourselves in this chapel this morning. Do you call yourself a Christian? Well, if you do, this is the way that I can test your profession. Are you filled with amazement this morning? Is that your supreme feeling? Amazement at the fact that God has so loved you, that he has come down into the virgin's womb in order to meet with you. Come to the cross, fixed nail to the cross, immovable, the one who created everything and who controls everything. He can't move, nailed. Why? Oh, that you and I might meet with God and might know the forgiveness of sins and might know that we are the children of God. Amazement. Are you amazed at it? What else? Worship. I read here in the 14th verse. And the king turned his face about and blessed all the congregation of Israel. And then in brackets, and all the congregation of Israel stood. They stood in worship, in praise, and in adoration. And it is the only adequate response to the message of Christmas. Amazement, worship, adoration, praise, and above all, rejoicing. You remember the first people who went to see him. They were the shepherds, weren't they? They had heard the news. The angelic host had given them the information. They said, let us go to Bethlehem and see this extraordinary thing that has happened. And they came and they found Joseph and Mary and the babe lying in the manger, everything exactly as it had been told them. And what happened? Oh, they worshipped him. And I'm told that they went back to the fields and to their sheep rejoicing that all the things which the angels had told them had surely and truly come to pass. Have we seen these things, my friends? Do we really understand them? That's the way to test it. If you do, you'll be filled with amazement. You'll be filled with worship, adoration, praise, and you'll go out of this chapel rejoicing. 
Rejoicing that God hath visited and redeemed his people. Rejoicing that you know God is your father. That you know your sins are forgiven. That you know that you're a joint heir with Christ of the everlasting glory that is coming. Rejoicing. And praising him who alone is worthy to be praised. Well, let us do so. By singing together our closing hymn, hymn number 85. We'll omit verses 3 and 4. Verses 1, 2, 5 and 6 of hymn number 85. O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem.
be unto God for his unspeakable gift.